It is a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, one thing I do know, and maybe one of you brothers in the back could help me out with this, uh, I'm going to need uh, water. That uh, Cubano, it felt like it was made by an experienced barista, but it has cream in it. So if somebody would just bring me a, a cup of water or dwindle, do you mind? Thank you. Please turn in your copies of the scriptures to 2 Corinthians 10. Our uh, Advent season begins next Sunday because we're having church on Christmas, so we have four Sundays. I'm excited about Christmas, but it also worked well to, to fit this in here before we move into the uh, Christmas season. Second Corinthians uh, chapter 10, there is a, this is a passage of Scripture that many people have, uh, we read it and we actually quote it sometimes and maybe have... Uh, less understanding than we should of what it means. I'm going to begin reading in verse uh, verse 3. It breaks in the middle of a paragraph, but we'll start there. For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Let's just stop there and think about what that verse is saying. For though we live in the flesh, what does that mean? We're here. We have earthly bodies. Now, Now, how does someone wage war according to the flesh? How do you do that? Oh, come on, you're, you were really busy talking. Let's just have some ideas. How do we wage war according to the flesh? Words. Selfishness. Yeah, force. Force. I mean, literally force. And in and, and both ways, selfishness and that we're trying to force something. And it, it may even resort to violence. So that's how... War is waged according to the flesh. Um, Brother Paul is writing here, For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. And that should cause us to reflect. Thank you, brother. So, So we're supposed to wage war differently. Since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God... For the demolition of strongholds, we demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. And we are ready to punish any disobedience once your obedience is complete. Okay, just back up and let's just take a a look at the passage and, and look at what it says to the first readers. So Paul is telling them we don't fight according to the flesh. But and and the weapons of the way we fight are not of the flesh, but they're powerful from God or of God or through God for the demolition of strongholds. So apparently Christians have the power to destroy strongholds. And, and we need to embrace that and say, okay, how do we do it? Uh, now notice he, he, de- he defines the strongholds by saying we demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So let's just, again, look at that and say, by the way, the word arguments there, we demolish arguments. That uh, word arguments there could also be translated computations, like when your brain computes. So it's thoughts. So we demolish arguments. So how do we demolish arguments? We demolish argument and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And that's where Murph was talking about selfishness. 
That is the ultimate pride being raised up against God is when we resort to selfishness. Because we're saying we know better than God or we take the place of God. And so first of all, I actually think that, that the, 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 this warfare that we're talking about needs to happen inside of us. And we need to fight against that, that selfishness. But then it says we also fight against anything that is raised up against God. Now, sometimes we see this the, the, the best if we look at stories that relate to it. Um, and and I, I'd, li- I'd like to look at two of them. And, and I'm going to ask you, if you want to follow along, it's fine. It, Matthew 22. If you have your copies of the Scriptures, please turn there. And we'll use an example of how Jesus did it. Now, I, I actually... So the premise of the sermon this morning is that, that I think that we undervalue ourselves when we don't keep learning, and, and our learning is based around God. So it is primarily people with little knowledge and, and, and who have stopped learning that become dogmatic. Let me repeat that. You've all met these people who, who, who try to win an argument by becoming louder, or pounding pulpits, or doing whatever they do. You know? It, it's true in the political realm, it's true in the spiritual realm, it's true in the religion, religious world. So, some people th- seem to think that winning an argument doesn't come through actually engaging with the argument and, and, do, and breaking down the reasoning that is wrong, even in your own argument, but it, it be, the best way to win an argument is by becoming louder and and what you don't realize when you do that, when you're not willing to keep learning, and when you're not willing to grow in your own understanding of what it means to walk with Jesus, you end up looking like a fool. And again, let me just say this. It is primarily people with little understanding and who are not willing to keep learning that end up being dogmatic. I, I was... Uh, Earlier in my life, I'm one of the older men here. Some of you young men don't remember the arguments about eschatology. Eschatology means the end times. And when I was uh, 18 to 20, it was a really popular argument among the circles we traveled in. And these old preachers would stay up for hours into the night. They wouldn't let their Bible school students stay up late to play volleyball, but they could stay up hours into the night arguing about which view of the end time is right. And they would get really loud and vehement. And there's just not very much, there's nothing very appealing about that. Okay, that doesn't destroy reasoning and strongholds. What that does is cement people into their positions. And Jesus is inviting us to move outside of what we know and grow in our understanding of him and, and become better. The Bible has a lot to say about wisdom. And I think wisdom results... When um, a respectful heart, when our hearts are, respectful, are, are respectfully united with a disciplined mind. And with a disciplined mind, I mean a learning mind. So, uh, two examples of this. Matthew 22. So, uh, earlier in this chapter in Matthew 22, the, the, uh, the Sadducees come to Jesus, and they try to get him into an argument in verse 20, about verse 23. Uh, 
they didn't believe in the resurrection, so they, they came and said, okay, so how can, how can this be true? And they try to get Jesus into an argument, and he doesn't argue with them. Now, again, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees in their world were always at odds, and these are the, the preachers who would fight. They'd argue every point, including the resurrection and how the resurrection worked and when Jesus, when the Messiah was coming, just the same as the schools of eschatology do in our world today. Uh, so so they're, they're arguing. They try to entice Jesus into this argument. And Jesus doesn't respond. He, he cuts to the chase and says, why are you asking me this question? And, and, he, and he, gets it, he gets right down to the core of it. And then the Pharisees... Uh, in verse tw- uh, 34, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together and came to him and tried to get him into it, trap him into an argument. So you have the two um, competing sides in a, in a theological argument. It, this is similar to a group of professors who come to Jesus and they say, okay, so, uh, or, or here, here's a, another prime example. Uh, I, be, I need to be careful how I use this. Um, Let's, let's say somebody, had, well, eschatological, I was going to say creation, but we actually, I do actually believe that the Bible speaks to that. But even, even in the creation arguments, you're not going to win anyone by, by shoving the arguments down people's throats. What you're going to, what you have to do is move them outside of their way of thinking, which is exactly what Jesus does. So he's this group of very well-established Sadducees. Let, let's put it like this. They actually believe Maybe, maybe in, a, in our present world, they would be the, uh, the, the Christians who struggle with uh, creation, seven-day creation. And then you have the Pharisees who are very strong seven-day creationists. And they're always at odds. Now, again, that's not the point. Their point is about the resurrection of the dead. But this, this puts it into modern terms. And Jesus doesn't, refuses to get baited into an argument where, where they can propose their point. Instead, what he does is he takes it back to the heart and say, ultimately ask, why are you, why do you want to argue about this? Let's think about this. And then, so, and then the Pharisees try it with him, and then Jesus says this. Uh, in verse 41, this is what I want you to, to think about. While the Pharisees were together, Jesus questioned them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They replied, David's. He asked them, how is it then? I'm sorry, I'm, I jumped ahead of myself. Verse 37. I, I just got a new pair of glasses, and I'm struggling to read. I'm just going to be honest. I'm old, and I'm struggling to read. So, um, and this has fine print, so I'm going to just uh, do this. But, but we'll begin at verse 35. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? Now, again, they want, they want him to say obedience. They want him to say you have to follow our way. And they, they try to butter him up. And, and he said to them, notice what the, the Pharisee said. He was an expert in the law. Which command in the law is the greatest? He said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. Now, Every Jew in the audience understood the passage. This is the Shema. And every Jew, every morning and every night in their daily prayers, they would, they would use this from Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul. But in Deuteronomy, it is strength. Jesus changes that and says, with all your mind, because he's talking to a group of people who are occupied with arguing. 
And he says, love the Lord your God with all your mind. What does that mean for us today? How do we love the Lord our God with all your mind? And then I I want you to notice we're going to go right into chapter 23 again and, and just look at this. In verse 8 it says, But you are not to be called rabbi, because you have one teacher, and you all are brothers and sisters. Do not call anyone on earth your father, because you have one father who is in heaven. You are not to be called instructors either, because you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you don't go in, and you don't allow those entering to go in. These are strong words, but what Jesus is saying here is, and again, it doesn't mean that I'm not supposed to be called instructor if I teach. They're saying, don't look for your instruction from someone who is human. Look for your instruction from someone who is from heaven, the Messiah. And so again, Jesus is saying, Think about what you're doing and actually defeat them by doing something else. Now, there's one other account of this, and it is found in Acts 25. I'll just tell you this story. Sometime read the story in Acts 24, 25, and 26 about Paul. So Paul gets captured. He gets captured and he gets put into prison. And Felix is the leader. So Felix comes to him and... and, and and puts him on trial, and he calls all the... He, the Jews have an argument with Paul. Again, it is the learned Jews who have an argument with Paul. They're trying to defeat him. And so they, they, bring, uh, they bring him in, and, and Felix says, Paul, you're, you're so convincing. And, and Paul is very direct with Felix and says, let me tell you why it's convincing. It convinced me. I met Jesus. I met the Messiah. And it's a really powerful experience. And then Felix leaves. Felix is replaced by Festus. And then Festus, Festus is a funny man because he plays both sides. He he likes the Jews and he plays both sides. And then finally Festus, uh, Festus' boss shows up, Agrippa. This This is a wonderful story in scripture. I love the way it's laid out. But Festus seems to be this guy who's trying to impress his boss. His boss is King Agrippa. And Agrippa comes... And, is it, and, and, and Festus thinks, oh, I've got this guy. I'll solve the problem. The Jews are always putting pressure on Festus, saying, deal with that Paul. Let's release him to us. They were going to kill Paul. Release him to us. And he says, no, I can't do that because he's appealed to Caesar. And I've got to appease Caesar, but I've got to appease these Jews. And so he puts Agrippa, his boss, into this position where, where Agrippa is forced to kind of decide. And it, it's like this... Um, this politician who plays both sides. And he's prime at this. He's really good at this. And, and Paul is placed before Agrippa. Now, Paul has, has not argued his case before Felix. He's argued his case before Festus. And, and now it's Agrippa. And he's on his way to Jerusalem because he's had a dream where he'll, meet, he'll be placed in front of Caesar, the ultimate king. And so Festus, here's Festus. He's in front of Festus or in front of Agrippa. And Paul goes into this eloquent, eloquent defense of the gospel, talking about how the gospel impacted his life, how he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and how it changed his life forever. And he took it to a much deeper level than just simply intellectual argument. He took it to a place where, where Agrippa felt Paul's power come out of Paul in a way that he'd never met because Paul had met the Messiah. And, 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 and suddenly Festus breaks into Paul's argument. He breaks into it. And he says something very, uh, in, very I, I just, 
it just really struck me why I said in verse 24 of chapter 26 in Acts. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus exclaimed in a loud voice, You're out of your mind, Paul. Too much study is driving you mad. You've studied too much. It's driving you crazy. You're, Paul, you're nuts. And, and like, again, get the scenario here. He's in front of Agrippa, who is Festus' boss, and, and, and Festus can feel Agrippa, Agrippa's loyalty swing. And suddenly Festus breaks in and says, Too much study has made you insane. I hope they say that about me. You're nuts. You've been too, you've studied Jesus too much. You've, you're, you're too, you're too good at what you do. And see, Paul has his mindset that whatever I do, I'm going to do it 100%. And if I'm going to be a Christian, I'm going to be 100% Christian. And that means engaging, and the entire focus of my life is going to be built around learning and learning more about Jesus and learning more about God's created world. And I'm going to be the best tent maker that I can be. And it, it, it struck me that as I was reading this and thinking about this, that, 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 that is really how we defeat the arguments against God. We defeat the arguments against God by bringing our, our entire being, our heart, soul, our strength, and our mind in under the lordship of Jesus Christ, under obedience to him, and we engage our entire facilities in learning more about whatever it is that makes us move and operate in the world. So I think that if God is calling you to be a, bu- a businessman, you should be the best businessman you can be. Because that brings honor and glory to God. If Paul would have been a poor tent maker, if Paul's tent making skills would have been shoddy, he would have not had the same opportunities to share the gospel. So if you, if you, uh, and and what it, well, let me just say that what it also calls us to is to become students. Notice what Jesus says earlier, don't have a, don't, Ultimately, you should be my student, my disciple. And when we say we're a disciple of Jesus, we're saying we have a teacher and we're going to follow his model. And that means loving God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. And that means engaging your facilities. And so uh, for, 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 uh, for those of us in, in our, sitting in our present world, that means we engage in the world differently than our parents did. You know, we live in revolutionary time. The digital revolution will change our world more than the printing press changed the 1500s, the world in the 14-1500s. The digital revolution has made our world so small that we suddenly have the ability to reach all into the, uh, reach our tentacles into the world in ways that are powerful. And it's going to take more than an eighth grade education for the future to do that. Now, some of us have an eighth grade education here. That's okay. That doesn't call us to something different. It calls us to become learners and students. So how do, how do we make this happen? First of all, in ourselves. We begin with ourselves. We become students. Uh, if you are called to be a firefighter, we have two sitting here. If you're called to be a firefighter, you be the best. You learn everything you can about firefighting. You become the best firefighter possible. Not so you can outcompete your fellow firefighters, but because when we are actually good at what we do, it brings honor and glory to Jesus Christ. If you're called to be a sheep farmer, a shepherd. That's the official word for a sheep farmer. Okay, if you're called to be a shepherd, you become, you, you get to know the sheep. 
You get to learn everything you can about sheep. If you're called to be a historian, you learn everything about that painting that you can, that you work with every day. If you're called to be a truck driver, you figure out what it means to shift those gears correctly, and you become the best truck driver. Because when we become the best at who God calls us to be, whatever... See, there is no division between sacred and secular in Paul's world. There's no division. There's not a part of his life that is spiritual and another part that, where he works. It's all together. And that means we, have, we are called to be students, every one of us, in whatever field we're in. But ultimately, it calls us all back to be students of Jesus Christ because ultimately our eternal destiny is not as a roofer or a shepherd or a business owner or a firefighter. Our ultimate destiny is we are Jesus' children and his disciples. And so we learn everything we can. We become students of the Word. We study the Bible. But we study the... See, I think there are three... There's, there's these circles of study. I think at the center of that circle... Think about it like... A, I should have put it up here. I, I have a copy of it on. Think about that concentric circle. At the very center is the core of what we study. And that is not the Scriptures. That is Jesus Christ. Because the scriptures are dead. The Pharisees and Sadducees reflect that without the life of Jesus inside a person. So we study Jesus. How did he act? How did he move? What did he do when he was faced with something like this? Then around that is another circle that is the Bible. Because this is God's word to us. This is his word to us. And so, but again, the word is meaningless without the living word behind it. And then outside of that is another circle, and you could call it nature. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Study nature. How does nature work? How does science work? And every discipline, disciplines are things like mathematics and science and history. Every discipline finds its rooting in Jesus. And as Christians, we should be the best explainers of nature. And so we we study nature, and then we study nature's creation, architecture, and art, and those things. You guys should know a little something about Rembrandt. You guys should know a little something about Bach. Just a little. At least study it so when somebody brings it up, you can talk intelligently about it, because that intelligent discussion may actually lead you into a discussion about something much bigger. That's how Paul operates. He goes around and he, and he sees an a, a, a idol. He said, now wait, don't your own poets say this? Oh, so you should actually know a little poetry too. And you should probably know a little something about modern culture. You should probably know who the President of the United States is. I, I presume you do, but there are people who don't. But you should also know a little something about what's going on in the world around us. That's why thinking about, for instance, the Ukrainian crisis. Like, why is that important for us to think about? Because it affects the world around us. And when we can have in, in discussions about those kinds of things. Okay, so, so that's how Paul operates entirely. So that's how we should become. We should actually become students. And, and by the way, this is great fun. This doesn't mean you have to sit in classrooms. This means you can actually engage your mind and enter the world and think, huh, wonder how that works. And then you tear it apart to see how it works. I wonder why people do that. And then you try to figure that out. 
So the first thing we do is we revert to being students, learners, and disciples. And by the way, the first thing a student understands, a good student understands, is that they don't know everything. You know, what? when I went to university, one of the things that I suddenly realized about really good professors and really bad professors, really good professors understood that they knew very little and wanted to learn from their students. Really bad professors thought they knew everything and forced it down your neck. So what would it be like to say, you know what, I'd like to learn more. Or when you get in an argument, say, huh, that's interesting. And you allow that curiosity to move you into discussion. It's what Paul does. He does it so well. The second thing we do, so we become students. The second thing we do in defeating these, the, the, the computations against God, the arguments against God, is by creating worlds in which our children are taught to think well. And that begins with education. It is my belief that the Bible teaches that parents should guide their children's education. That doesn't mean they, they always educate it in themselves, but they should guide it. And so, therefore, I bless people like Andy, who sits on the school board at Faith Christian. I bless people who engage with their student, with their schools, because, again, I think we live in, a, in revolutionary times. And while many of us can survive in today's world with an eighth grade education, I mean, we have proved that successfully. I don't think the next generation will, will have necessarily nearly as many possibilities for that. So I think that you should think about educating your children. And you create worlds in which your children, you allow the natural curiosity in a child to lead them into thinking. Never, never. You know what? Can I, t- can I tell you a liberating truth? I don't have children. I don't. But if the Apostle Paul can preach about marriage, and he was probably unmarried, I think I can say something about children. That when God allowed your child to be created in the womb in the way that he did, he didn't create a mini-you. He created a unique person. And that unique person is going to be different than you. He's going to be, they're going to be gifted differently than you. And, and then you allow that to blossom. For, for in my case, my parents, my mom particularly early on, saw my love of reading and encouraged me. Now, other parts of my world didn't but it opened worlds up for me. By the way, let me tell you a little story. In, when I was six years old, my parents got swindled, and they bought a set of World Book Encyclopedias. I still remember how the salesman looked. He was wearing a double-knit suit with a necktie that only came down to about here because uh, he had a rather large stomach that precluded the necktie from going on down. Anyway, and he wore this cheap cologne. And about a year ago, I walked into a place, and the proprietor of the place was wearing that same cologne. And my mind immediately went back to that. I I, I still remember, this is, I'm 52, so 40, 40, uh, whatever, 46 years ago. I still remember how that cologne smelled. And a few weeks later, this large box came in the mail. And I remember this little six-year-old boy who had this natural curiosity and this love of the printed word already by then, finding this box of books and thinking, oh, this is like a treasure chest. And I begin reading. I thought you were supposed to read them. And so I know more about aardvark, aardvarks, the zebras, than 
maybe I have this trivia things, but they, they opened up a world to me that allowed me to explore. Now, not every child is going to be like that, but my, particularly my mom, but my parents allowed that to grow and cultivate. And so your child is going to be different. So cultivate the gifts. That, the Bible is clear on that. Train up a child in the way that he should go, not in the way you want them to go, but the way that that child should go. Give them all the tools necessary. If your child wants to work with his hands, you teach him how to work with his hands the best way possible. There is no shame in, 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 in working with your hands. By the way, let me say that. Um, there is no shame in that at all. In fact, God calls us to be tent makers and builders and firefighters, and some of us he calls to be academics. So we, we become students ourselves. The second thing is we create worlds in which our children are taught to think well. And the third thing we do is by encouraging, developing, and supporting organizations that give us the opportunity and our people opportunity to think well in safe environments. So what would it look like to actually have a university for those of us who are called to go to university where we could wrestle with truth in a Christian world? What would it look like for, for, for you if you're called to, to be to hang drywall, for you to also develop some skills at how to run that business the best way possible. I, I think that for 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 a hundred well for for five hundred well not five hundred years but for the last hundred and fifty years particularly in America our our people have survived very well at finding our niche. But but I think this the digital revolution is changing that. And suddenly the small, insulated, enclosed world has been opened up. And it's calling us to something else. Suddenly we have opportunities to appeal to Caesar, to go in front of Agrippa, to be in front of Festus. And so we do that. And and by the way, let me also say this. there are many Christians in the universities. I, we found a lot of Christians in, for instance, at Yale. Yale was more Christian than Ohio State was. And that isn't because they had a better football team either. By the way, was there a game yesterday? I, I didn't find out much about it. I was moving some things around. Anyway, um, but, okay, so, so, but universities, what, what makes universities dangerous are that students go there and suddenly they're no longer in the confines of what has felt safe and they have no mentoring and no, no spiritual care. And it, it, it can explode. And thinking and learning to think can be heady. That is one of the reasons why over the last five to seven years, Narita and I have had a vision and a burden to start something in Holmes County that feels that creates an environment where people can learn as we transition. See, we were farmers. Then we became artisans, working with our hands. And the next generation of people will need to do much more than work with their hands. They'll need to work with their brains, too. And where are the Mennonite attorneys? Where are the Anabaptist academics? When 22,000, or when uh, Ohio State student population is well over 50,000. It's one of the largest land-grant universities in the United States. If you've ever been there on opening day, and not opening day of football, but opening day is hundreds of, well, 11 city blocks that are blocked off. And all these young kids are there, and we're not. 
We're not creating a presence. So where are the people who will do that? But where are our good businessmen? And so Zalakan was created. And by the way, Zalakan is a suburb of Zurich, Switzerland. It's where the first baptism took place in 1525 when this group of Anabaptist leaders, the leading Greek scholar in all of Europe, Conrad Grebel, Felix Mons, who, who could read and write five languages fluently, took their theological ideas and put them into practical shoe leather, and the first congregation develops. So if you're interested in Zalakan, Narita will come, up and come on up in a minute, but we, we offer two tracks of study. We offer a, a, an unaccredited track for some of you, uh, where we have business kinds of classes, also pastoral classes, and then an accredited track. Some of you should be taking college courses. If I can do it in my 30s and 40s, you can do it at your age. And by the way, the older you get, the cheaper it is. Um, anyway, Narita, here, you want to use the mic? And I'll close. When I was asked if I want to share about Zalakan, I said, sure. I don't want to wear out my welcome, but there are new things to say. And so, just to re- uh, I've said it before, but the vision of Zalakan is to equip individuals with a steadfast faith integrity of character, and um, excellence of skills, excellence of skills, building on a foundation of historic peace Christianity. Um, And one commitment that Zalakin has is to do this while not tearing down our culture, but to add to the the good of the culture, um, also recognizing that some things do need to be restored, so restoring what is broken and healing what is hurting. Two ways we are fulfilling this vision is, uh, like Marcus said, and the skill sets are changing. And so I think one story I've said, I don't remember if I've said it here, is that when I first went into OSU, what I quickly discovered, even in that first semester, was that the world does not know the Christianity that you and I were brought up with where Matthew 5 is for today. And so that Christianity I heard even being talked about was very, very different. And uh, finally, I would, as I gained some confidence in the classroom, I would raise my hand and say, well, uh, actually, I mean, there's a different view here of Christianity. Because it was actually very unattractive. I heard it being said in very unattractive ways. What I discovered, though, is that here were these very, very bright um, professors in university, and I hardly found one of them that had heard a reasonable, logical argument for Christianity. And I found that there's a hunger there for that. And so, like Marcus said, you know, when opening day is, and uh, we ask um, Bruce Gordon, who is one of the leading Reformation historians in the world, you know, what his take is on current Anabaptism, and his immediate, he, he did think about about three seconds, <laughs> and then he said, they're irrelevant, because they're not in the places that are really making a difference, and I thought of those 11 city blocks down in Columbus, if you're ever there on opening day, it's just electrifying, it's not, like I said, it's not, it's not opening day of football season either. It's opening day of school, and the, the, the future of our world is there in those places. 
but we're not, we're not there making a difference. And uh, so hopefully, by the time Marcus and I were done, we're like too old to really make a big difference there in those places. But I do hope that um, someone that comes through the doors of Zolikin in the future will be able to make a difference in those places in more ways than we are able to. Um, the other thing is that well, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip through this because I'm trying to watch my time here. But how, not only do we want to equip people with skills, I look back at my mom. With her high school business track education, her and my dad built a business through their lifetime. And they were very able to do so. That is changing now. Anyone in the business world knows that you have to keep up with your skills. Like they change so rapidly with all the technology. Um, so, so the one way is, is just through adding to the skills. And uh, I'm excited about what's on the slate, and I'll show you those. The second one, though, is how we're going to do that. And that is by um, we're just adding in those faith classes to especially the accredited, accredited um, portion. But to to actually do the teaching from a Christian, historic, peace, Anabaptist, Christian worldview is not something that is often done here. So I'm going to say just a wee bit about the accredited side, or I'm sorry, the professional development side, which I'm just excited. The one track is the business track. Um, Marcus mentioned that we have the business track in the professional development, which is not accredited. So it's basically you come for eight weeks on Tuesday evening. We start about uh, 4 o'clock. The earliest one, I think, is 3, so that any working person, once a week, Tuesday evenings, you come on Tuesday evenings, and you, um, we run bi- some business classes. There's going to be pastoral classes, and I'm super excited about we just spent a couple of hours last a week ago with an individual who's going to be involved and building out all of those courses to include things like uh, pastoral training, conflict resolution, all of those kinds of things, church governance. So anyone who's involved in church leadership, those will be just, I'm very excited about what's in the future for that. Um, We have some things for teachers in the community, and then we have uh, business courses And the business courses I'm going to mention, particularly those are, we have one by Larry Troyer, financial management, Um, Jim Smooker, the leadership course, and we've added a new one this year, Excel, uh, by uh, Ben Beachy. And what I want to say about those is that all of them are being taught by people who are both having years of experience in their field and years of experience teaching. And we've just we had great reviews of those last last year, so you can look at those. Um, we have other, some in the other category. So we just finished our our choir, and uh, we have German in that. And then the the teaching and preaching class, Marcus uh, back here, <laughs> yours truly is going to be teaching that this this spring. Those start January tenth and run for eight weeks, once a week. Um, the accredited, though, I want to so. I don't know how many of you found out, but we have, uh, this summer, Zolikin purchased a property in Walnut Creek. And so we're working to build something out for fall 2023. 
This spring, we're just we're doing three accredited courses. We partner with Malone University for those. So if you're a high school student, um, you can come and take one of those classes and use them as dual credit. So you can get credit for both high school and college. So that's a win-win for any high school student because um, it both cuts your time down at college and it gives you good skills and it also is much less expensive if you do it that way. Um, the three classes running this spring are Transitional Moments in Western Christianity, which is, again, Marcus, and then we have two, uh, Creative Writing, and then a basic writing course that you need for any degree in any college, and it's also just helpful in communication. That's taught by Stuart Mullet, and I sat in last year, and I'm like, this is just a quality, I compared it to a quality FB uh, instruction, because that's where he would have grown up. Um, so those three are running the spring. However, next fall, we're calling it a soft start. So this is post-high school. Also, they will be able to, high school students can come as well, but we're focusing on post-high school students who want to start their degree program, and we're running uh, a core curriculum that they can take full-time to stay uh, whether it's students from this community or outside the community, there'll be a house where they can stay and have an actual student experience. And, uh, and then we'll be rolling out programs in the second and third year, and those will be things like business, social work. Those are some of the ones we're looking at. We just got approval for those programs from alone, and uh, all dependent on the instructors, of course. But um, just excited about about that and what God has in in store. So ask back at the table. I'll be back there uh, afterwards if you have questions. Let's stand together. Worship team, make your way up. So again, become a learner yourself. Create worlds in which your children can learn and, and show the way by supporting organizations that do this. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for this morning. I pray that you would bless us at becoming learners and become and growing in our education. And, and Jesus, help us to also not get proud in any way, but to remember that we all know so little and that the actual true learning happens when we embrace the fact of how little we know. And then we allow you to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen.